0: This is America on the Road, winner of the International Automotive Media Conference Gold Medal Award for radio and now in its 25th year on the air. Thanks for being with us as we bring you the latest automotive information from around the world. A new study tells the effects of COVID-19 on car buyers' preferences. And the results are surprising. We'll tell you all about it next. America on the Road is brought to you by Mercury Insurance and DrivingToday.com. If you're looking to save some money, you should switch to Mercury for your auto and home insurance. Californians save an average of $670 with Mercury, so imagine how much you could save. Get a quote today at mercuryinsurance.com. Hi, I'm Jack Nerey. With me is co-host Chris Teague. Chris is based in Maine. I am based in Southern California, so we are doing this cross-country. And I always get a little bit of a weather report. I, I love Maine, number one, and I love to hear what's going on up there. Uh, so, tell us about it, Chris.
1: <laughs> Good morning, Jack. Yeah, we're in the middle of uh, a rainy July here. Uh, quite warm, but very, very humid, almost like a swamp. And I got to tell you, we're we're seeing some of the after effects of the smoke from fires in Oregon. If you can believe it or not, uh, all the way over here, and our air quality has dipped considerably. So. Uh, little rough, but not, not as bad as obviously the people who are suffering from the fire. So uh, can't complain too much.
0: Yeah, absolutely. Well, I'm sorry to hear that. And I'm sorry to hear about all that water. We would like some of that water here in Southern California. I can tell you that we'd love some rain. Uh, It seems like we're a long way from that, but uh, it's coming up. Again, we have the uh, little weather forecast and uh, weather discussion before we dive into what we actually do on this program, which is talk about cars and people involved in the car business. Our special guest is Tom Gattuso. He's vice president of events for the Specialty Equipment Market Association. He's the guy in charge of the SEMA show, and uh, that's one of the largest automotive trade shows in the world. Uh, it will be interesting to hear him talk about uh, what the COVID-19 pandemic has done to the SEMA show and what's going to happen this year. Uh, You know, what's your take on that, Chris?
1: You know, Jack, I think SEMA is a great opportunity for the smaller shops and builders everywhere that get out and show off what they do. And, you know, I don't know that they directly make money from it, but it's an awesome marketing opportunity and a great way for the industry and customers and enthusiasts to come together. So, Uh, I'm all for uh, it coming back and I'm excited to see the next show. I can't wait to get out and and go to one eventually.
0: I agree with you. I can't wait to see it and we'll talk with Tom Gattuso about that. In the road test segment, Chris will take a look at the Buick Envision and I'm going to review the 2021 Volkswagen ID.4 electric SUV. So, All that's coming up uh, on America on the Road, so stay with us. When we come back, we'll have some automotive news, including the results of this interesting study about how COVID-19 has affected consumer preferences. So stay with us for that. Thanks for joining us right here on America on the Road. Welcome back, everybody, to America on the Road with Chris T. Jack Nirad back with you. And it is our news segment. A lot going on driving news-wise this time around. And, of course, uh, we can't stop uh, feeling the effects of COVID-19. And it certainly has affected the way people have considered vehicles going forward. And, Chris, I think you have a news story on that, don't you?
1: I do. This is a J.D. Power story that came out last week. It was a look at the 2020 U.S. automotive brand loyalty. Um, where they take a look at people who trade in a vehicle to buy a new one of the same make, not necessarily the same model. Um, and on the uh, luxury side of the table, Lexus was the highest. That They found that around 48% of customers returned to buy another uh, Lexus, and then Mercedes-Benz and BMW and Porsche and Audi on that side. But Subaru uh, was the highest brand overall, and that also the highest among mass-market brands with Toyota and Honda uh, right behind. But the interesting thing that the study found was, uh, that these, you know, these numbers are increases of the uh, compared to the year before, which means that uh, during the pandemic and COVID-19, people fell back on the dealers and the brands that they were most uh, comfortable with, as opposed to trying to go out and find a new dealer, a new brand, and test drive and all those those things. Uh, so. Jack, what do you think about all this? It's uh, it's very interesting to me, and I think the autom- automakers are capitalizing on it with incentives, too.
0: Yeah, I think it is fascinating, and it, it just shows you the uh, far-reaching effect of COVID-19 and, and certainly of the lockdowns, because it's obvious that it became much easier for people to just buy from the same brand they had bought from before or leased from than going around and shopping. It, it really limited the amount of shopping. It was to the benefit of those car makers that uh, have biggest market share, of course. And uh, it was very difficult, I think, for any kind of challenging brand who is looking to gain market share. So uh, you saw a lot of stasis in the market and and people sticking with the brands that they had. And, of course, that favors the the big brands uh, that have the most sales to begin with.
1: Yeah, and like I said earlier, it's interesting to see how the automakers are responding. You know, I think uh, having written a few lease deals studies over the past few weeks, uh, brands like Cadillac have really neat lease deals for returning customers. So they're they're on the lookout for these people, uh, even though we're on kind of the tail end of the pandemic now. Hopefully,
0: yeah, I think recur- returning customers, especially for. Lessees, uh, that makes a whole ton of sense, right? I mean, you're going to turn that car into a particular dealer, the brand of dealer, obviously, from which you lease the car. So they'd love to put you in another car, and they're going to go out of their way to do that. Uh, I think having incentives from the manufacturer to enable that is very, very important. And it just shows you that the brands really defend their territory uh, in a way, kind of like a city-state would in medieval times, right? It's it's almost crazy, but that's really what they do. And if they're going to gain market share in a market that isn't growing all that much, they're going to have to take market share away from somebody else. So that makes this such a hotly competitive marketplace. And the takeaway for the consumer is you have a ton of power in the marketplace. You might not realize it. You might fear going into the dealer, but uh, you rule, really, as, as somebody who could buy or lease a car. Uh, you're uh, a very rare commodity and uh, you have a lot of power if you decide to uh, throw your weight around a little bit.
1: Yeah and you know I think uh, the dealers are you know they're doing very well right now in the the climate where the prices are climbing and you know uh, the margins are getting a little bit better for them but uh, anecdotally it seems like they're working harder on customer service and things like that to try to capitalize on that too so hopefully it continues. Yeah
0: we shall see uh, what, what happens going forward Of course, we're going to see a lot of new brands come into the marketplace uh, over the course of the next several years, especially uh, especially on the EV side. So uh, strong loyalty to current brands uh, doesn't bode well for them. So we'll see what happens on that score as well. Well, we're going to say goodbye to an old friend. It's not that old a friend, but it is an old friend uh, to me. It's a vehicle I've liked a lot. And I'm talking about the Volkswagen Passat, their larger sedan, uh, this is a vehicle I've liked a bunch over the course of the years, and now uh, we will see the end of production in Chattanooga, Tennessee. Uh, that's going to end with the 2022 model year. Uh, the plant is uh, transforming to build electric vehicles. Of course, Volkswagen has made a big commitment to electric vehicles. What was your take on the Passat overall, Chris?
1: I always enjoyed it, and I think the people who bought it uh, enjoyed it or the people who you know returned to Volkswagen, speaking of brand loyalty, but Uh, It just, here at least, it always seemed like it was an also-ran to the Accord, the Camry, Uh, and even like the Hyundai Sonata. But, uh, you know, it was a a solid car for what it was and a pretty good value for the money.
0: Yeah, I think one of the big benefits of the Passat, and it's still a big benefit, you're going to be able to buy a 2021 and 2022. So uh, pay attention to this. A lot of interior space. I think there's a lot of space for the money. I think there also is a a bit of a premium or or at least different feel to the Passat than your run-of-the-mill midsize sedan. Uh, all of which seem, in a lot of ways, kind of the same. And then you get in the Passat, and it, it, you know, you have a, a bit of a different experience. And I, I don't know whether I'm just skewed toward the European experience, or uh, I, I like things that are a little different. But uh, you know, I certainly enjoy the Passat through the years.
1: I think you're right. You know, there it is a little bit more of an engaging uh, driving experience. The interior is a little bit more upscale and spacious, as you noted. But uh, the swan song for the card, the limited edition card that they're releasing for 2022 uh, is interesting for a bunch of different reasons. Uh, the limited color schemes that they're releasing, the four different colors, I think, uh, with different numbers that signify uh, various parts of the the Passat's history in the, in the U.S., I think they're making 423 of one color, which coincides with Chattanooga's uh, telephone area code. So. Uh, really, kind of nerdy, interesting things they're doing with the car to send it off.
0: Yeah, it's interesting the way they have divvied that up. And I, I, I'm very uh, creative, I think. I'm not sure it means anything to anybody, but uh, maybe guys like you and me and uh, the people who buy those vehicles. And it might not even mean a whole ton to them. But it is an interesting way to do a limited edition. Uh, there are limited editions within the limited edition apparently.
1: Yeah, I kind of like it. You know, I'm from Tennessee, so Chattanooga is a, a, you know, a fun memory of mine growing up. We still take the kids to the the aquarium there all the time, so seeing those numbers, uh, you know, made me a little homesick when I was reading it the other day, but uh, I like like what they've done with it.
0: Yeah, fascinating stuff, and it just shows you what's happened with sedans. They're just going the way of the dinosaur apparently, and uh, fewer and fewer of them in the marketplace, and uh, it's uh, interesting to me, too, that we lose the Passat uh, from a uh, European brand where sedans are still strong in Europe, much stronger than here in the United States. But uh, it seems like that's going away as well. So there you have it. It will be missed. Yes. True, true enough. Uh, here is another study from J.D. Power uh, with uh, a bit of in- interesting information, I think. And it's about online shopping apparently half, and I'm surprised it's this low a number, actually, (laughs) about 49% of vehicle shoppers are willing to purchase a new vehicle online. And that's up 11 percentage points from just 18 months ago. So that shows, that's another effect of COVID-19, among other things. I think a lot of people Uh, bought vehicles online, had a good experience and are passing that experience along to their friends saying, hey, this worked out pretty good for me. Maybe you want to try it. Uh, What do you think about that?
1: Yeah, I agree. You know, I was just about to say word of mouth is got has to be the driver here. And, you know, it's the dealers, like I said earlier, they're kind of capitalizing on the situation. Um, And the experience is largely positive. You know, we I don't know if I mentioned a few weeks ago, Uh, bought a Volvo, uh, showed up. I think we spent less than an hour at the dealership overall. Um, 98% of the transaction was done online, and we walked in and walked back out. And so, you know, I can't say that the same would be true for every brand, but uh, when they've worked so hard to streamline the process, there's really no reason not to take advantage of it.
0: Right, and uh, the manufacturer websites are getting better and better. Uh, Here are some uh, manufacturers with uh, among the best websites, according to J.D. Power, Acura, ranks highest among the premium manufacturer websites. BMW ranked second. Mercedes-Benz was third. And then uh, on the other side in mass market, uh, Buick, and, uh, Buick and Fiat, <laughs> there's a strange, <laughs> a couple of bedfellows, right? Uh, were highest in mass market uh, websites. And then Jeep ranked third. It's interesting that Jeep ranked third Because the Jeep website is very much like the Fiat website, which is very much like the Chrysler website, which is very much like the Dodge website. Uh, So uh, that all makes sense, I guess, that they would kind of hang together there. But I think the important thing uh, to understand is a lot of people, a lot more people are willing to buy a vehicle online. So that's an interesting takeaway from that study.
1: Yeah, it's interesting. I think you and I probably use the websites a little bit differently than the average shopper would. I'm frequently digging around for information for an article or whatnot, but uh, they have gotten better uh, in recent years. And I do agree. I think, you know, Buick has a great website and so does Jeep. So um, love to see it.
0: Well, when we come back, we will be doing uh, our road test segment and we'll be taking a look at the Buick Envision Hey, we were just talking about Buick. And I'm going to be taking a look at the Volkswagen ID4 electric SUV. So stay with us for that. Thank you so much for being with us right here on America on the Road. Welcome back, everybody, to America on the Road. We're so glad you're with us. We really appreciate you listening to America on the Road with Chris Teague. This is Jackney Red with you. And it is road test time. We're really excited about the vehicles we are road testing this time around. Chris, tell us a bit about the uh, Buick Envision that you were driving.
1: Yeah, Jack. I spent the week in the uh, 2021 Buick Envision, uh, the mid-range essence trim. It's one of three that is offered for 2021. The other uh, two are the preferred, which is the entry-level trim at around $33,000. And then the very top-of-the-line, very fancy, plush Avenir trim, which is uh, right around $41,500. Um, My Essence trim came in right under $40,000 with options. It had very nice uh, leather interior with uh, heating, a heated steering wheel, uh, 10.2-inch infotainment screen that runs uh, Apple CarPlay, Android Auto, and uh, it's very similar, the software uh, in Buick is, to uh, Chevrolet, which is the infotainment three, I believe is what they're calling it, but it's very simple, very straightforward, uh, easy to use when the vehicle's in motion, so there's not a lot of uh, distraction there. Uh, But as I said earlier, the Envision is all new for 2021. It's got a beautiful outside styling. They smoothed out the lines and and really gave it a handsome shape. Everything's very clean. Inside is much the same story. Uh, Nice sweeping lines. The cockpit is all oriented toward the driver, uh, which made it a little difficult for my wife to change radio stations from the passenger seat. Uh, But otherwise, I think it was very, very good to have a driver-centered cockpit. And the interesting thing here for me, and I'm, I'm going to get your opinion on this, is that uh, with the with the Envision, it's the middle of the road for Buick crossovers. They have the uh, Encore on the, the low end and the Enclave at the top end. Um, and then, you know, Buick itself is kind of the, the middle of the road brand that straddles premium and uh, mainstream brands. And the Envision kind of has that feel to it. It's got a mix of different materials and uh, some nice, some sort of low rent, uh, but what's your take on Buick in general and how this has kind of fit together? I don't know if you've driven the Envision, Jack.
0: Well, Buick is fascinating, and I think the Envision is fascinating uh, within Buick. Uh, one, uh, one of the things to keep in mind about Buick is it, it probably would not be around as a brand if it weren't for China. Buick is a big brand in China. And when General Motors was uh, reshuffling the deck and uh, throwing a lot of brands away, uh, there was certainly some talk about doing away with Buick uh, just in the same way that they did away with Oldsmobile. And at that time, Buick was known for its sedans. It didn't have very many, if any, uh, SUVs. And um, they just were wondering whether they should keep it. And uh, the reason they did was it was such a strong brand in uh, China. And uh, it has great brand presence in China, it's really pictured as a, as a luxury car there and uh, does very, very well. So uh, flash forward and we have the Buick Envision, uh, which has a lot of Chinese roots to it, uh, built in China and uh, a mixture of Chinese and American influences. It's just a, kind of an interesting confluence, I guess, or <laughs> coming together of uh, various uh, things uh, in, in that vehicle.
1: I agree, and that's part of why I broached the question is, uh, after I was reading the the label in the door jam and on the Monroney label, the final assembly point in China, uh, and it struck me, and, you know, Buick itself, uh, I think they've they've done a great job, at least in recent years, of sort of bridging that gap intelligently uh, with features that are upscaled, but they've kept the prices pretty reasonable, you know, the, like I said, around forty grand for an all-wheel drive crossover. It's not the most spacious in the class, you know. Uh, 25.2 cubic feet of space behind the second row seats is not all that generous, even when you compare it to something, um, in the, the mainstream brand, the Toyota RAV4 has over 37 cubic feet. So quite a bit more, uh, but it does have, uh, it's very comfortable and it's very quiet. It's very much a Buick. So if that's your thing, I think that, uh, there's some decent value to be had here. Yeah, I think so too. I mean, that is such a crowded segment. And you, you point out very rightly
0: that Buick kind of straddles it. It's not a luxury brand, but it's not a mass market brand either. It's one of those few premium brands. You might uh, say that GMC, uh, of course, the sister brand of, of Buick, and maybe Acura uh, is another brand that uh, that lives in that space. You could maybe make the case even that Mazda lives there as opposed to being a mass market brand. Uh, but uh, I think interesting what Buick is trying to do, and it, Buick has become basically an SUV brand, and um, most of their volume is with SUVs like the Envision.
1: Yeah, and uh, as you point out, you know people could view that as a positive thing—the straddling of the the two classes, or, or what would you like to call it, you know, because you have a wider audience. But I also think it's a big challenge for them, and they have to be on their toes because now they're competing with twice as many vehicles, some of which are extremely well uh, received and very very popular. So uh, it'll be interesting to watch how the brand goes forward. Absolutely.
0: I think there are blurred lines between mass market and premium. That's for certain. And if you look at them straight up as a value, Buick against, say, a Toyota or Honda, well, maybe the Honda or Buick, or uh, Honda rather, and uh, Toyota uh, might have the value story going for them on the pricing side. But uh, a lot of people want that extra prestige of a of a Buick, especially in the middle of the
1: country. <laughs> Absolutely, and it's a good looking vehicle. You know, it's had a dark, uh, deep navy blue pearl paint job that really, really stuck out. I think it's about $500 extra, but well worth the dollars if you ask me.
0: Right, I was driving a car, it actually had a, a blue paint job too, and a very good looking one, uh, that I think is going to be a um, prestige car for a whole different reason. And I'm talking about the Volkswagen ID. Four Volkswagen's first all electric SUV, uh, their global EV. It's built in uh, on a particular electric vehicle architecture that we're going to see more and more and more of. And it's in the world's largest market segment, which is one you were just talking about, compact SUVs. So here's another one. But this is all electric. And uh, that alone is fascinating. When I I drove the thing, I found it to be a a very, very interesting vehicle. It is so different than the typical vehicle and the typical compact SUV that we see so much of. (laughs) Heaven knows we see tons of that. I feel like I've uh, become the expert on these uh, smaller family vehicles, these uh, compact SUVs. And I guess we should be because it's the most popular segment. Uh, in, In base trim, and the trim you can get it in right now, the trim I drove it in, Uh, It has 201 horsepower and 229 pound-feet of torque. That is one advantage of electric motors is you get uh, a lot of torque, and you get a lot of torque right now. The range on this vehicle uh, on a charge is uh, supposedly 250 miles or so, and that turned out to be a a good amount of electric vehicle range. When I've had electric vehicles before, uh, there's always this panic that you're going to run out of juice and uh, not be able to charge or... Uh, have a long charge time, which is uh, still an issue, and I, I'll, I'll get to that, but uh, this is a vehicle, I think, with an interesting and attractive price, about $40,000. $40, it's 39995 nine ninety five MSRP. You could, if you uh, make enough money and uh, qualify otherwise, get a $7,500 federal tax credit. There might also be tax credits or some other kind of credits in your uh, local market in your state. Uh, you can also lease this vehicle and also get the benefit of a tax credit. It's pretty pretty good lease offer. I think we talked about that actually in last week's show about how good the lease offer is. Uh, interesting configuration. The electric motor is located at the rear, and uh, Volkswagen points out that's just like the original uh, Beetle, uh, the Volkswagen Beetle with an engine at the rear. It has a two-stage, one-speed gearbox And as I mentioned, the uh, electric motor puts out 201 horsepower. Range is is pretty good, and I'm thinking when you get to a range of about 250 miles, you really don't have to think about it much. What's your what are your thoughts on that, Chris?
1: I agree with that. You know, I think you buy uh, an internal combustion uh, powered compact crossover, you're going to probably get around 300, maybe 350 miles to a, a a tank, but. Uh, from what most of us are doing right now, especially for me now that I live closer to civilization, uh, that would be more than enough uh, for a, a city runabout, absolutely. I think this was a great runabout. A, you know, A lot of
0: people f- uh, found it to be a very interesting vehicle. I, I ended up taxiing a lot of people around. I, I had my daughters here, and I, I became the uh, local Uber service uh, for them as they were going here, hither and yon, uh, across the South Bay. So that was fun. And uh, one of the things, I want to get to the driving experience because it is so different than the typical car. And what you feel and what I feel, and uh, I'm curious as to your take on this, Chris, is the amount of weight and the amount of weight in the battery pack. Now, I don't think it's just uh, psychological uh, that I know that there's a lot of weight there. I, I think there is a different feel to these vehicles. It's not necessarily a bad feel, but it's certainly a different feel than the typical car with an internal combustion engine, and I certainly felt that in the ID four. Again, I don't th- think it's a bad feel. I just think it's a different kind of thing.
1: What's, what's your take? I completely agree. I don't think it's a placebo at all. I think, you know, the the weight of the battery pack located down low in the vehicle, no matter if it's a small vehicle like uh, the Chevy Bolt or a larger vehicle uh, like the ID.4, it, it does give it a little bit of a go-kart feel, like it's almost, you know, the center of gravity is lower, so you, you can definitely feel that in motion. I agree with you there. And I also think uh, you have that
0: go-kart feel in that you have that one speed. <laughs> you just Push, uh, push on the accelerator pedal and you get more and, more and more and more and more and more and more acceleration. And there's no gear changing and none of that conventional feel uh, that you get, obviously, in a, a gasoline-powered car. So it's, again, a different feel. Uh, I, I think in a lot of ways a better feel. It's certainly quiet and certainly very efficient. So uh, we like that. The interior of the uh, ID four is very, very inventive. Basically, the instrument panel is right on the steering column, so it uh, moves with the steering column, and that's all good. Uh, I just, I, I really like the vehicle a lot, and at the same time, I found it fascinating that it's so different uh, than vehicles I've experienced before. And uh, so, I think it'll be successful in the marketplace,
1: and I hope people
0: give it a try.
1: I, I think I agree with you. I don't think I agree with you. I, I do agree with you. I can't wait to drive it. I haven't driven one myself. I was going to ask you, Jack. How the road noise is. I know you mentioned that the powertrain is quiet. How much road and wind noise do you hear like on the highway or around town? You know,
0: it really depends on the road surface. Uh, Mostly this is a very silent car. Uh, I mean, you're you're silent. The powertrain is essentially silent or very, very uh, unobtrusive. Let's put it that way. Although electric cars make their own kinds of noises. Uh, They're just not very loud noises. And then... uh, I think in terms of road noise, and not not a ton. And I think they did a great job with the arrow on this thing. So I, I think we have two uh, very interesting and and ver- worthwhile cars to sample uh, that are outside the uh, normal bubble in the Buick Envision and the Volkswagen ID. Four. And when we come back, we're going to have an interview with Tom Gattuso, who is the vice president of events for the SEMA Show the SEMA uh, Specialty Equipment Marketing Association show. So we'll be talking with Tom Gattuso when we come back. So stay with us for that. With Chris Teague, this is Jack Nierad with you, and you're listening to America on the Road. Welcome back, everybody, to America on the Road. Jack Nierad back with you, and we have a special guest for you. His name is Tom Gattuso. He's Vice President of Events for the Specialty Equipment Market Association. And Tom, thanks so much for being with us. We appreciate you joining us.
2: No, I'm happy to be here. Uh, this is great.
0: Let our listeners know what the Specialty Equipment Market Association is. I mean, it's a giant association. They sponsor a massive, massive trade show. Uh, but uh, give them uh, just some background on, on the organization before we start talking about shows and events.
2: So our association is... And Specialty Equipment Market Association, really um, best known probably as SEMA, represents a lot of things automotive, and and really we um, we have a mission statement where our job is to help our member companies succeed, and and our part of the industry is um, aftermarket performance things that you put on your car um, to make it perform better and look better, and 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 really just be able to enjoy um, the vehicle more. So um, from our standpoint, we really serve this segment of the industry through education and legislative and regulatory uh, support um, and a membership network that will help um, promote the association and the industry to our member companies. And then we produce the industry's leading trade show. And um, you know through all that, we've got this group of seven thousand members um, in an industry that's a, a thirty five billion dollars industry that uh, that takes the platform of vehicles and helps people customize them and um, make them um, individualized for enthusiasts and and really um, something that people can enjoy.
0: Yeah, they're individualized in many different ways, aren't they? I mean, uh, what SEMA does, I think, or what the the companies that are members of SEMA do, they help people customize and personalize their vehicles in of different types. I mean, it could be recreational vehicles, they could be, uh, you know, essentially hot rods and, and speed type vehicles. There's just a bunch of different kinds of things, all with the idea of making the vehicle you have just that much better,
2: right? Right. And, and that's the thing, like, we're our industry is constantly innovating and evolving and um, improving the performance of things. So we were tapped into different segments of it and whether it's off-road or overlanding in the truck section or something to do with power sports or restoration of vehicles and, and hot rods or uh, racing and performance, it's, it's all under our umbrella of services that we offer for our industry. And, um, and it's neat to watch because as products get developed and, and innovation comes down the line, performance gets better, cars get more reliable, they last longer and um, it creates a situation that we just experienced where um, we found that, that people had projects going in their, in their garage and, and when we had a little bit of a shutdown with COVID, Um, some of those projects got resurrected, and and it was great to see the passion that people had for their cars not stop.
0: I mean, it really hasn't stopped. In fact, uh, you know, a lot is said about the love affair of uh, Americans for their cars and for all their vehicles, because it it extends to trucks and vans and everything else now, doesn't it? But uh, I think... SEMA is really the epitome of that. I mean, and it is it is where uh people come to uh, get the tools, get the uh actual parts and and, and pieces to uh, make their cars their own. Uh, talk a little bit about uh, just that love affair that people have with their cars.
2: So it's interesting because sometimes if you look in our parking lot, um you you get mixed um signals of of what segments of the automotive aftermarket um even our employees are, are into, but um, there is this this passion that exists when you're talking to somebody that's an enthusiast for um, for vehicles, and it can be any any aspect of it. So there's the performance aspect, there's the um, appearance aspect, there's um, just the reliability and uh, economy aspect.
0: And probably functionality too, I would think, right? I mean, you, you help, uh, especially recreational vehicles, I think it'd be more f- uh, functional and useful and probably a- across the board.
2: Yeah, you know, because people are, are like, we'll take Overlanding as an example. Um, people were were purpose building some vehicles to go deep into the wilderness and, and do camping and exploration. And a segment of the industry started to emerge just really based on the passion. Um, same thing with the racing industry where you're trying to compete and you wanna win and parts break or parts um, aren't as rigid or performing as well as they could. So we have these entrepreneur innovators that develop better parts, start companies and evolve them into um, exhibits and companies that are on display at the SEMA show. So that passion and that enthusiasm is what really sets it forth first year you're into something, and then you find there's ways that it can be improved to make the experience better. And that usually comes down to parts that are developed and you take those parts to market. And, and that's kind of the evolution. It starts from an idea to a company. And a lot of the companies that we, that we have as our members today started with just a simple idea and a simple product and have evolved into really, really successful businesses.
0: Right, either we're working out of a garage or somebody's basement or a, a little machine shop in, in the corner of a, uh, a building somewhere, and they have uh, grown to be uh, global companies, massively successful companies. And at the same time, I'm sure you still have uh, essentially kind of smaller ma and pa companies that are member companies that also find and uh, find marketing through the SEMA show. Uh, probably the most critical kind of marketing they do
2: all year. We do. And and that's that, for me, is one of the, the neat dichotomies to watch because we always have new companies that are developing products and, and coming into the industry and into the marketplace. And we have these core companies that have been with us for a long, long time. And it's great to be able to see this evolve. And for our show, if you looked at it in terms of size of booth, two-thirds of the show is a 20 by 20 booth or smaller, which um, is significant because a lot of times people think of, of the SEMA show as as larger companies, but really when you look at us um, at our core, we're made up of small companies and, and small mom-and-pop ideas that um, right now are being developed in a garage somewhere and and will become a commonplace product that's on a car in the future.
0: Talk a bit, Tom, about the attendees to the show, because I think that's important. And I think a lot of people are listening to this and probably going, boy, I'd like to go to the SEMA show myself. And uh, it's likely they can't uh, unless they're uh, industry-affiliated. But uh, talk to us a bit about that and and who attends and why they attend.
2: So it is a business-to-business event, and and it's a 54-year-old event, Um, a little bit of... About the SEMA show, it actually started its first year in Dodger Stadium, underneath the grandstands, and we had about a hundred companies, and we had about three thousand industry buyers, and it just kept evolving from that to where we are now, where um, on a on any given year we've got more than two thousand exhibitors, and we have seventy thousand buyers and one hundred and sixty thousand total attendees. So it, it really evolved from a smaller event into what it is today but really at the core is somebody who's manufacturing a product or has a service that they provide the industry and then you have somebody who would like to buy that product or receive that service and it's this buyer seller connection that that is the the makeup of this event throughout its history so so really it's exhibiting companies from the aftermarket performance segment and the collision and tools segments of our industry and then industry buyers that are retail shops or race shops or fabrication shops um, that are coming and looking for parts that they're putting on customer vehicles um, as well as retail establishments that are that are looking to sell parts as well. So um, at our core, again, it's, it's all about performance and, and making things better and there's a buyer and a seller for that, and we're really just building the environment to connect those two.
0: What's really hot right now? Is off-roading hot? What's hot in the wake of the fact that we're coming out of a pandemic and a lot of people wanna get out again?
2: So I would say that off-roading really is hot, and and what we're seeing from a a market research perspective is there's this um, trend that, light trucks and trucks are the majority of vehicles that are now sold. And, um, we're going to see a point in the next five to 10 years where that may almost be 85% of the vehicles that are sold in the U S. So, um, we're definitely seeing some trends with trucks, but even if you break down into trucks, I talked earlier about overlanding. Um, that's a really hot thing right now. Um, off-road racing is another one that is, um, is really starting to um, have a resurgence in racing in general. Uh, we're really close to the racing industry, and and we you know we started with performance companies um, that were, were centered to a certain extent around drag racing here in Southern California, and um, and racing is is making a resurgence just because there's there's innovation and and technology happening in and around racing um, that we're mirroring. So when you look at our show and what's new, um, those are the areas that really are um, starting to show some, some really good trend lines.
0: Certainly, uh, the pandemic had major effects on SEMA and, I, and on the show itself. I mean, uh, drawing that many people into a place just became impossible last year. Tell us a bit about the challenges you faced last year and, and then what you're, you're doing this year.
2: So the, it was an interesting process um, to go through what we went through and, and almost immediately, um, and when we started to, to go into a remote work from home situation as a company, um, our very first thought was our members. And we immediately put uh, a campaign together where we needed to connect with our members and just see A, how they were doing, but B, what services we can offer them um, to help them through this time. And what we experienced through that was some companies were, were doing okay. Um, the, the outlook looked pretty good. And, and in the first couple months of um, this COVID, um, I guess, retreat, if you will, um, where, where companies and people were, were working from home, um, we checked in with them and they were doing okay. And then throughout that summer, um, we were getting reports that some companies were doing better than they ever had. So when we looked at it, we had two-thirds of our manufacturers that um, had actually increased business over the, the prior year. Forty um, percent of our retailers had reported increased sales. So, um, so that to us was surprising, but what it showed was this passion and enthusiasm that happens for um, our industry and the vehicles that, that people have um really couldn't be stopped by something like covid
0: but of course uh a lot of the stuff that uh your your member companies create it, it doesn't translate nearly as well as as being hands on with it right i mean uh you can show stuff you can do virtual stuff you could do zoom calls but that that face to face and and feeling that actual part or seeing that actual part in your hands or seeing how that you know, that could be attached to the car or whatever. That's something that it kind of takes being in person, doesn't it? And, uh, you know, that's something I guess you're going to be able to recapture.
2: Yeah, it, it certainly helps to to have stuff like that in person. And um, and what we've learned is that that's really the, the preference for the marketplace. So um, we're excited this year because we're going to be able to do that. And we're we're seeing really, really good support for people wanting to attend and wanting to get back to this this live event atmosphere.
0: I would think they would be. I, you know, I've attended the SEMA show many, many times, and there's really a festive atmosphere to it. There's a festive atmosphere to the show. There's a, fe- a festive atmosphere to Las Vegas, when the show is going on right there's there's a lot of evening events it's really a candy store for anybody who uh, cares about cars it's it's just an awesome time i think an awesome week
2: yeah and and it's great because we we play a part in it but at the at the end of the day the exhibitor and the buyer are what really magnifies it and makes it so great we come up with these ideas and we in a demonstration area where you can see parts in real-world applications doing drifting or uh, driving demonstrations or whatever it is, it creates this excitement.
0: What do you think the future of trade shows is, and the the future of the SEMA show specifically, but the the future of trade shows and
2: auto shows overall? So I think people really enjoy the face-to-face interaction and the efficiency at which they can they can see a lot of things all at the same time and, and be able to get the intangible parts of it. At its core, the trade show is a conversation that happens and, um, and it's just really efficient and people like it. So we're seeing that the future of the SEMA show is gonna be really strong and, and our role right now is to predict the trends that are gonna happen in the marketplace and then be able to mirror those trends so that we can create this environment that lets the people gather and um, explore what it's gonna look like into the future. But I'd say the, the outlook for the SEMA show is very strong and, and trade shows in general is, uh, is really, really bright.
0: So let our listeners know when this is going to take place.
2: So this year we're gonna be November 2nd to the 5th and we do our business to business event Tuesday through Friday. But then we do open it up. And for the past seven years or so, we've had some consumer events. One of them is, is something we call the SEMA cruise, which happens Friday the 5th. And that is a parade of all the vehicles that are at the show. They they literally, as they're exiting the building or our grounds, we take them through uh, a predetermined route. And we have people that show up and and, um, and watch the vehicles or, or artwork in motion, if you will. And then there's a destination for this SEMA cruise. Um, all these cars cruise over to um, the west side of our campus where we have an event called SEMA Ignited. And that again is more of a consumer enthusiast event, but it really gives you a look behind the vehicles that are at the show, how they perform, and uh, some of the great companies that are um, that are so important to our industry and, um, and brands that that people are going to be doing business with to customize and specialize their cars.
0: What an exciting industry and SEMA show, what a, what a wonderful event. Uh, Tom Gattuso, uh, Vice President of Events for SEMA, thanks so much for being with us. We really do appreciate you sharing your insight on this and your predictions of what the future is going to hold. Uh, thank you so much. It was great talking to
2: you. Yeah, great talking to you too, Jack. I enjoyed it.
0: And stay with us, everybody. We'll be right back right here on America on the Road. Welcome back, everybody, to America on the Road with Chris Teague Techni Red right back with you. And it is uh, listener question time. We love to take your listener questions. And I think we have an interesting listener question for you this time around.
1: What is it, Chris? I do have one. This one comes from Norman. He's in uh, Pueblo, Colorado. He asks Why are American car makers, automakers, stopped making cars? It seems like all we see now are trucks and SUVs. Uh, what's happened to sedans and coupes?
0: Well, I think they're responding to what the American market wants, and because they're American manufacturers, they're even more responsive and and more responsible uh, for the American market than import manufacturers. Import manufacturers, uh, global manufacturers, look at the whole world, and sedans still sell uh, in many, many markets, so they're able to use that synergy, I guess, uh, that ability to... uh, bring those sedans to the American market because they have enough volume based on selling them elsewhere. Uh, But American car makers, American automakers, I should put it that way, concentrate on what sells here because that's where they sell most of their vehicles. They don't sell many vehicles overseas. So that's why they concentrate on trucks and SUVs. What are your thoughts on that, Chris?
1: You know, I think that, yes, first of all, I agree with what you said. I think it's easy to criticize them because people tend to be nostalgic for things that go away. But uh, it's a business decision. You know, I, I think there are probably plenty of people at Ford and, and Chevy who would love to still be selling uh, the Ford Focus and and all sorts of other things, Chevy and Paula, whatever you want to call it. But um, strictly business, hopefully someday we'll see some come back. You know, I think fuel prices might drive people in the other direction. You never know.
0: It would be fascinating to see if sedans come back and if coupes come back. I think uh, you and I probably grew up loving those kinds of uh, vehicles and uh, you know, we thought of trucks as being trucks, and uh, we're not necessarily as enthusiastic about them, but now that's the bulk of the market, so that's interesting. And uh, that's also our show. Uh, This is the Uh, end of this uh, edition of America on the Road. So I want to thank you, Chris, for being our co-host. We really appreciate you being with us.
1: Thank you, Jack, so much for having me. And thanks, everyone, for listening. I I hope to see you next time on America on the Road.
0: (laughs) Yes, we'd love to have you join us again right here. Uh, And uh, Chris is having a good time as we're ending the show. So uh, I think you'll have a good time being with us again next time on America on the Road. So for Chris Teague, this is Jack Nerad thanking Mercury Insurance for sponsoring the show. Thanking Chris for being with us as the co-host and thanking you very much for listening to America on the Road. We do appreciate it. You're the reason we do what we do right here on America on the Road. So join us again next time for another edition of America on the Road. America on the Road is brought to you by Mercury Insurance and drivingtoday.com. If you're looking to save some money, you should switch to Mercury for your auto and home insurance. Californians save an average of $670 with Mercury, so imagine how much you could save. Get a quote today at mercuryinsurance.com. And of course, if you're looking to buy a new car, check out Driving Today, where we have all the automotive information for you. Driving Today, the official automotive website of America on the Road.